Freddy was his name. He was a farmer, and for 12 years he'd been experimenting with a kind of super crop. He'd done everything he knew to do, and this was the year that it was supposed to happen. As you stand out there and watch the harvest beginning to take place, you see the giant machinery rolling down these long rows of what seemed to be picture-perfect crops. A great celebration was in the making. Uh, The barn was being decorated. The reporter for the county newspaper was there. And just about everybody in Slow Grove County was going to show up for the big celebration. At last, they had made it. There was just one hitch. Freddie had been careless about a deadly chemical that had been used to work on the wheels and fenders of the tractor. It was a rust treatment. And if you didn't hose it off carefully, it would kill anything it touched. So meanwhile, the harvester was out there rolling in the crops, and they were beautiful. No problem. The problem was that unknown to Freddie, even as he was harvesting a winter, he was sowing seeds of poison that would ruin next year's crop. Because into the soil was going a a steady flow of death. So even while he was celebrating success, he was planting seeds of destruction. And the principle involved here in today's story is parallel to that. It's the story of how tiny little compromises can fall into the ground, and if left untended, even while you're celebrating your greatest victory, you can be in the process of sowing seeds that will ultimately ruin your life. You know who we're talking about. This is the next to last in our series on Saul and David and Solomon. Solomon is the man of the hour. And if you may recall, last week we talked about the greatest moment in his life, the celebration time. Solomon is celebrating what took place after almost 20 years of hard work, the building of the temple and the building of his own palace. It it was akin to being chairman of the board of deacons during a fundraising drive where you're going to build a building and you labor and all you think about is getting the job done and it takes years and years and finally the building's up. It was that kind of celebration, but during that celebration, we're going to find this morning that even while they were celebrating the victory, tiny seeds of destruction were falling into the ground. You say, I don't want to hear that kind of lesson. Let's go back to one of these hoop-de-doo kind where everybody gets happy. Wait till next week. We'll get back to that as we close it up. But the question isn't whether or not it's happy time. The question is, is it true? And the truth is the word of God paints it like it is. And so often biographical sketches are placed in the Old Testament of men and women who lived and who took tiny detours from the will of God only to find out they were dead ends. Solomon's life will end up like that. Solomon, man of wealth, man of wisdom, man of power, man of the hour. But the scripture we'll find this morning as we go through 1 Kings 9, 10, and 11, in chapter 11, verse 4, we read, As Solomon grew old, something happened. He began to focus on the fruits of his greatness and forgot all about the reasons for his greatness. And that was the end. As Solomon grew old. In our last study, I look at one of the more encouraging aspects of Solomon's life. While he was celebrating, God appeared to him, you remember, and he began to pray, and 
recounted for the children of Israel all the neat things God had promised. He had promised that David that he would have a son to serve in his stead, and he promised that his son could actually build the temple that David was not allowed to build. And then he closed out, you remember, by saying, and remember, there hath not failed, what? One word of all that God hath promised. Whatever God has said he's done, whatever God has promised, either has come to pass or will come to pass, there hath not failed one word. Now, the problem in the Christian community, as we have talked about so many times in this class, is that we tend to extremes. Satan loves that. And in the case of the promises of God, that's the way it is. Those with positive spiritual gifts and certain temperaments and certain messages will come out and tell you that everything's good and they'll focus on the positive promises and they'll name them and claim them and go on from there. Then there are others who are prophets of doom and all they talk about are the promises of judgment. But the truth of the matter is you and I must learn to keep the balance, the portrait of God that's so indelibly etched in Scripture. God is perfect righteousness coupled with perfect grace. He desires to give us all the grandeur of the heavenlies, but he's also made certain loving demands on us that cause us not to trample that holiness underfoot. He'll never leave us or forsake us, that's true, but he will discipline us. And he wants us to know that if we presume upon his grace, we'll pay the consequences. Today, our man Solomon, fresh from his reminding the people about how wonderful his God is and how faithful his God's word is, gets a long-distance call from heaven. And he picks up his cellular phone and says, Hello. And God says, That's you, Solomon. He said, That's me, Lord. There has not failed one word. I got my memory verse. Good, Solomon. Good. But I need to remind you, Solomon, if my promises of blessings always come true, guess what? My promises of judgment always come true as well. We left off last week in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 1 is where we begin. When Solomon had finished building the temple and the palace, and he'd achieved everything he set out to do, the Lord appeared to him again. And the Lord said to him, Solomon, I have heard your prayer, and I've heard the plea that you made, and I've consecrated this temple. My eyes and my heart will always be here. Verse 4, if you walk before me in integrity of heart as David did and do all I command and observe my decrees and my laws, I'll establish your throne forever. Promise, right? Write that one down, Solomon. you got a promise. But, uh-oh, other side of the promise. If you or your sons turn away from me and you do not observe my commandments and decrees and you go off and serve other gods and worship them, I will cut off Israel from the land. I will reject this temple. Israel will become an object of ridicule. And though this temple is imposing, then all who pass by will laugh and scorn and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this temple and to his people? And people will answer because they have forsaken the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of Egypt and embraced other gods, worshiping them, serving them. That's why the Lord did this. Aha. Uh -huh. Now we have observed already not one word that God has ever said will fail to come to pass. So I think we can establish one thing. God isn't playing games with Solomon. God's not going to wake up one day and say, oh, shucks, it's okay. God made it very clear 
Let's look very quickly at the four key elements of this statement. Number one, God appeared to Solomon in the most, at the most vulnerable time in his life to remind him of what the rest of his life was all about. It says when Solomon had finished building the temple, finished building the palace, and had achieved everything he desired to do, the Lord appeared. Isn't that neat? Solomon had done what Solomon had come to do. After 20 years of laboring and waiting there, this big celebration, and everybody was happy. What a dangerous time spiritually in the life of a nation, the life of a church, and the life of an individual. When you push and you pray and you wait for something to happen and the answered prayer comes and you're all celebrating and your guard is down and Satan begins to move in and say, aren't you great? No, isn't he great? And I'm going to tell you the times of answered prayer in our lives and the times in in a church's life at the conclusion of a great evangelistic campaign or a great building program or something, those aren't the times we ought to sit around, pat ourselves on the back and say, wow, aren't we great, Lord? What a team. No, we're not part of the team, beloved. God is the team. And those are the times when we ought to humble ourselves, fall on our faces and say, oh, Lord, how great thou art. This is the kind of time Satan comes in whispers like he did to Solomon. Welcome to the GNY club. The GNY club is God needs you. And Solomon seemed to be buying the lie. Secondly, God reminded Solomon one more time. Saul, I did everything I told you I'd do, remember? Yes, Lord, you sure did. There hath not failed one word. And then thirdly, God says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make it clear. Don't you love the way God makes things clear? We as individuals have a gift of making clear things complicated. God has a gift of making complicated things clear. And the children of Israel knew exactly what was expected of them. He said, this is the deal. Number one, you have two choices, just two. That's why I like it, don't you? Number one, obey me and walk in integrity the way David your father did. Number two, turn away from me and follow the gods of this world. Now, in case you don't understand, he said, here's the consequences of each choice. If you obey, I will establish your throne over Israel forever. Clear enough. Number two, if you disobey, four things will happen. Number one, I will cut off Israel from the land. You can get a moving van. You're on your way. Number two, I'll reject this temple. The thing you invested your life in will be gone. Number three, Israel will become the laughing stock of the nation. Solomon, right now, everybody's talking about Israel. All they want to do is come see you, come hear you, come hear about you. The day will come if you don't obey me, you'll be the laughing stock of the world. And fourthly, when they ask, what happened? We're going to have to say they rejected, forsook the Lord, and went worshiping after other gods. Now I know what you're thinking, those ignorant Israelites. Anybody can figure it out after that, huh? Better not say anything, had we? Number four, finally, God was saying to Solomon, remember, not one word I have ever spoken has ever failed. These are the alternatives, Saul. Clear enough. These are the consequences, Saul. Clear enough. I'm not going to change my mind, God said. I can't and still be God. So the issue is clear. God has spoken. Now, what was Solomon like in the years that followed? What we really don't want to look at is just what Solomon did, but what was Solomon's heart? Because the commandment that God gave was really twofold. If you stop worshiping me and if you go worshiping other gods, let's take a look at what Solomon became like. Number one, he adopted the world's kind of political leverage. 
With all the affluence he possessed, with all of the things he possessed, he still was out to get the best deal no matter what it cost anybody else. How many of you remember Hiram from last week? Hiram. He was the friendly neighbor that entered into a treaty to help Solomon build the temple. He was a neat guy. They supposedly got along real well. So part of the deal was, he said, I'll tell you what, Hiram, you bring your troops in and you let them help us with this project and I'll give you 10 cities. Wow, he said, that's neat. If you look in verses 10 through 14, Hiram came over and looked at the 10 cities. And he looked around and he said, "Uh, Solomon, these are the dregs. In fact, Scripture says he named the towns Kabul, meaning good for nothing, and gave them back. Uh Uh-oh. You don't think Saul's getting greedy, do you? Hope not. Verse 20 through 22, we read, He took all the unbelievers who were left in the land and turned them into slaves. That's not too swift. Three, he took all the believers, verses 23 through 25. He didn't make them slaves, but he forced them into service. They either had to go into the military, into the civil service, or into the cavalry. And then fourthly, verses 26 through 28, he used Hiram's expertise to build a navy, and then he used the navy to sail around the world picking up goodies for himself. So he'd become the head of the most influential, powerful, affluent nation in the world. Kings and princes came from all over just to sit at his feet and behold his wisdom and listen to what his God had to say. He was so wealthy and so powerful and so ostentatious, the only word they could use to describe him was glory. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 6, you remember he was trying to describe the grandeur of the provisions of God and he picked the lilies of the field as his example and then he tried to reach back into the Old Testament to come up with something they could relate to. And he said, why, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one of these. Solomon in all of his glory. So there you have a picture of the man and there you have a picture of the seeds of destruction that were beginning to be planted. Now let's take a parenthesis and look at one incident that took place in Solomon's life that really has no bearing on this, but that falls in line here in 1 Kings chapter 10. So we'll just touch on it. It's an interesting story about a queen who came to visit and a story that's been embellished through the years and a lot of fiction mixed with fact. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 10, the first 13 verses. And it's in scripture, so we better not skip it. Verse 1, when the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with some hard questions. How about that? She arrived at Jerusalem, came to Solomon, verse 3, and Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for Saul. And when the queen of Sheba saw this wisdom and she saw the palace and the food and the seating and the attendants and all this stuff, she was overwhelmed, verse 6. The report I heard in my country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I didn't believe it till I saw it with my own eyes. Verse 8, how happy your men must be to be able to serve in this environment. Verse 9, praise be to the Lord your God. Oh, he has made you king. Verse 10, and she gave the king 120 gallons of gold. That's about four and a half tons. And large quantities of spices and precious stones. King Solomon, verse 13, gave the queen of Sheba whatever she wanted, whatever she asked for. Besides what he'd given her out of his royal bounty, and she left and went home happy. That's a loose translation. Now, that's all the scripture says, but history books have tried to add a whole lot more. And without question, the Queen of Sheba is really captured the imagination of men's hearts for some 3,000 years in literature and music and art. And not just a little of her fame is linked to this one little passage of scripture. 
Most of them seem to include some hypothetical romantic involvement between the Queen of Sheba and King Solomon. Now, where was the kingdom of Sheba? Nobody seems to know for sure, but most scholars seem to think it was located somewhere in southwestern Arabia on the eastern shore of the Red Sea. Now, why did she come? We don't know for sure, but most people think it was for the sake of commerce, but they also believe that she was intensely curious about this man and his kingdom. Those who are archaeological discoverers seem to have come up with the fact that the kingdom of Sheba, if that's indeed where it was, was a culture that was supported by a lucrative trade agreement and with frankincense and myrrh being their main items of export. Now, we don't know for sure why she came and what happened, but let me give you just a little secular background. The Ethiopian version of this legend is compiled in a writing called The Glory of the Kings. It was written by a monk in the 14th century, and its purpose was designed to establish Ethiopia as the heir to Israel's territory. And it has been depicted in sheepskin drawings, copies of which can be found even today. The story indicates that Solomon was so in awe of this queen's beauty that he was determined that she bear his child. And it states that she agreed with certain stipulations. And supposedly she returned to her country, bore a son whom she called Menelik, which means son of the wise man. And the story says that this son, when he grew up, visited Solomon, studied the Hebrew faith, and was anointed the king of Ethiopia. And for centuries, Ethiopian royalty boasted about this. In fact, in 1955, revised constitution of Ethiopia, listen, specifically says this, the royal line descends without interruption from the dynasty of Menelik, the son of the queen of Ethiopia, the queen of Sheba, and King Solomon of Jerusalem. Well, why don't we buy that? Well, for two reasons. Number one, the scripture doesn't tell us that. And number two, the timing of it seems in direct contradiction with the timing of scripture. So it may be just a figment of someone's imagination. We don't know for sure. But what we do know for sure is that everything the scripture said about this encounter is true. So let's very quickly just remind ourselves of that and go on from there. Number one, we know she traveled a long way to get there just to ask some questions. It was a long ways away. Two, she came peacefully. She didn't come with any kind of contentious spirit. She brought gifts and she came in peace. And then thirdly, she came with hard questions. These weren't hypotheticals, were they? I don't know what she asked him. She probably said, King Solomon, you'll never believe what we're struggling with. How can you reduce the deficit without raising taxes? That's probably what she <laughs> I'd like to know what he said. Anyway, number four, Solomon answered all the questions without missing a one. Not only was she impressed with his wisdom, the scripture said she was impressed with the grandeur of his kingdom. And she assumed that living in that kind of environment would make everyone happy, an unfortunate assumption. But she gave the glory to his God, a fortunate assumption. And then lastly, she unloaded on the king. The scripture says she gave four and a half tons of gold and an unknown quantity of other goodies. And Solomon gave her anything she wanted and let her go home. This was the world's first really free trade agreement. Now, we don't know much more about it, but one thing we know, she came curious about Solomon and his God. She left impressed with his God and impressed that the, his God had an answer to the deep questions of life. That's reason enough for the story being in Scripture. Now, the queen rides off in the sunset, and the next 30 or 4 verses tell us about King Solomon. It's not a happy ending, folks, but we've got to read it because all Scripture is God breathed. And this is the crux of this morning's story. Here's a man destined for greatness. 
Here's a man, the wisest man that ever lived. Here's a man that represented the king himself as the king on earth. Wiser than all men was he. And now the scripture begins to tell the end of his life. I've chosen to call it five steps to spiritual suicide. Solomon, at the height of his career, the applause of the masses ringing in his ears, now proceeds to move with clock-like precision down the road to spiritual ruin. While he was celebrating success, he was sowing seeds of destruction that ultimately took his life. I think it was his arithmetic that got him. The scripture says he multiplied treasures, he multiplied horses, he multiplied wives, he multiplied gods until he divided the kingdom. That's satanic arithmetic. But those are just the steps he took. The principles behind those steps are the key. He violated basic biblical instructions, and God had warned him, remember, don't do it. Maintain the integrity of your heart. If you do, your kingdom will go on. If you don't, your kingdom will end. Let's look at those five steps and perhaps, just perhaps, make some personal application. Number one, verse 14, he became obsessed with his treasures. The very things that his own writings said were vanity. Verse 14, the weight of the gold Solomon received every year was 666 talents, not including the other taxes and revenues. He made 200 large shields of hammered gold, 600 beckers of gold into each shield, 300 small shields. He built a great throne inlaid with ivory, overlaid with gold. It had six steps and a rounded top. On the seat were armrests by the side, a lion standing beside each one of them. There were 12 lions on the six steps. The scripture says, verse 20, nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. Now look in his china cabinet, verse 21. All King Solomon's goblets were gold. Whoopee. And the household articles were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was taboo. After all, nothing but the best. He had a fleet of trading ships at sea, and once every three years they came back carrying gold, silver, ivory, apes, and baboons. I'll leave that one alone. I don't know what that means. Verse 23. King Solomon was greater in riches, greater in wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world wanted an audience with him to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought him a gift. Articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, spices, horses, and mules. So in direct violation to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, which specifically says, Listen, no king over Israel shall greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Now, I wonder why God said that way back there. You suppose he knew what was going to happen? I'll bet he did. And I'll bet Solomon had a memory card stuck in his pocket. One of his memory verses. It says, no king shall ever multiply to himself silver and gold. And I bet as he went along, he put that card in his closet and piled some stuff on top of it and forgot to review it. What do you think? You see, the problem wasn't that God didn't want him rich. God made him rich. God didn't want his riches to consume him, to possess him. Because when he did, the things of the Spirit would cease to be, number one. Secondly, having multiplied wealth and magnified his temporal possessions, Solomon began to multiply horses and demonstrated that he gradually was putting his confidence in his own strength rather than God's. Verse 26 Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. 
which he kept in the chariot cities. He had whole cities just to maintain his fleet. Verse 28. Now listen, he imported his horses from Egypt. Listen to carefully to that. From Egypt and from Kew. The royal merchants purchased them a chariot for 600 shekels, a horse for 150, and they exported them to other kings as well. Isn't it interesting how God in his mercy takes us in our state of helplessness and in spite of us gives us the power to overcome the enemy and suddenly we put our confidence then in the vessels God used rather than in God himself. Personally, as churches, as ministries, God allows us to build a building and and we suddenly elevate the building. God, God allows us to build a program and we elevate the program or God blesses a man and we elevate the man. Solomon had violated the word of God again. Guess what? Deuteronomy 17, 14. When you enter the land God has given you and you take possession, you settle there and you say, let's have a king. Be sure to appoint the king that God chooses. He must be from among your own. Now listen to verse 16. The king, moreover, another memory verse, Solomon, don't forget it, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more because the Lord hath told you you're not supposed to go that way again the King James Version simply says he shall not multiply horses to himself why because God knew the end result is a king who becomes obsessed with his natural power loses sight of his supernatural power and that's why we're more effective when our strength is gone because the less we have the more we need the more we need the more we trust the more we trust the more God can become And thirdly, having taken his eyes off spiritual things, having placed his confidence in his flesh, Solomon takes the next step down. He begins to take the truth lightly. He lets compromises multiply that began early in his reign. Chapter 11, verse 1. King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he loved Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. He was totally unbiased. Verse 2. They were from the nations round about, listen, which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them. Seems like God's made this thing pretty clear, didn't it? Because they not might, they will turn your hearts after other gods. Now, whatever Solomon did, he did big time. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 17 one more time. God's information to future kings. He must not take many wives, or his heart shall be led astray. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, the King James says, that his heart turn not away. Nehemiah 13 writes an epitaph for Solomon's tomb. It says, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things, by marrying unbelievers? Shall we not hearken unto you not to do this thing, to transgress against God by marrying unbelievers? So God had two warnings. Don't take to yourselves many wives and don't marry unbelieving women. Because not if, when you do, they will ruin your life spiritually. Nobody ever violated that principle more than Solomon did. And apparently in his early years, old Saul must have been so busy building the temple and building his palace that he kind of kept his focus a little bit. He seemed to still be in love with God. But look at verse 4, and this is our key verse for the morning. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. 
as the heart of David his father had been. What a statement. As Solomon grew old. How would you like to put your name in that verse? As John grew old, as Mary grew old, as Fred grew old, his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord as the heart of his father had been. In the years when the harvest of spiritual blessings should have been the greatest, in the golden years when he should have been able to watch the blessings of God overflow, those little drops of poison that fell from the earlier days of his ministry began to take root and the crops began to die. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart away and he wasn't fully devoted to God. And now comes step four down the road to spiritual suicide. He's turned his eyes toward the temple. He's begun to trust his own strength. He's taken the biblical absolutes lightly and now he enters the enemy camp and doesn't even know he's there. He denies the holiness of God and he says, no longer is it God or it can be God and. Listen, when you reach that stage, beloved, it's over. And he did things he'd have sworn a year or two before he never would do. Listen, verse 5. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Molech, the god of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. He didn't follow the Lord completely. On a hill east of Jerusalem, he built a high place for Chemos, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech. And he did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifice. Can you imagine it? This is Solomon. He overtly shakes his fist in the face of a holy God, the God who rescued him from nothingness, who took an average mind and infused it with the wisdom of the ages so that kings and queens from all over the world came just to hear what he had to say. And he turned his back on God and didn't even know he'd done it. And step five was God's turn, and it was inevitable. He had to do two things. He had to remove the mantle of authority from this man's life, and he had to allow his enemy to triumph over it. He had no choice. You say, why not? Because he gave his word. And remember, there hath not failed one word. Verse 9, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. He had forbidden Solomon to follow after other gods, but Solomon didn't keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said, Solomon, since this is your attitude and you've not kept my covenant and decrees, I'll tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your subordinates. But for the sake of David, I won't do it during your life, but during the life of your son. And I'll not tear the whole kingdom from him. I'll give him one tribe for the sake of David. And then verse 14, the saddest verse of all. Then the Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary. What a sad ending. Just when it seemed Solomon was enjoying the fruits of his years of labor, there began to appear in the garden of his life the evidence of deadly weeds that had sprung up, weeds that were the result of little grains of poisonous compromises. And when everything of life should have been going his way and should have been making sense and all the accolades of the world were poured upon Solomon, suddenly the blessings of God had been falling in his camp. You read those incredible words, but as Solomon grew old, he missed it. Now, he didn't set out to defy God. But in the midst of his prosperity, his values changed. In the midst of his success, his confidence shifted. And at the time when his miraculous wisdom seemed to indicate that he had arrived spiritually, he took liberties with the word of God. And having taken liberties with the word of God and tasted no immediate consequences, he drew the conclusion that either God had given him a, made a special case out of him or God's word simply would fail. It wasn't a single spontaneous choice. Solomon didn't wake up one morning and say, I think I'll defy God. 
and neither do we. It was just a gradual drifting away from the basics. Just a little compromise here and there. A subtle discarding of his first love, a gradual merging of the concepts of the world and the precepts of the word. It was just one long continual act of self-justification until one day he woke up worshiping in the enemy camp and didn't even know how he got there. It can happen. And it was at this point, my friend, that a loving, caring God had had enough. And there arose from out of nowhere in this kingdom that had been known for its peace, evil adversaries whose singular objective was to destroy the kingdom. And God, I believe, weeping and grieving in heaven, withdrew his hand of protection from Israel. And he allowed the enemy to have his way. Now Solomon could rely on his riches. Now Solomon could trust in his horses. Now Solomon could find solace in his foreign wives. Now Solomon could call on the pagan gods to whom he had erected those abominable altars. Now Solomon could rely on the things he had deliberately substituted for the power of God. No, wait. Now Solomon had to. As Solomon grew old, the scripture says, he had to live with the choices he made. And beloved, so do we. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for painting on the canvas of Scripture indelibly for eternity the truth of the Word. And thank you for reminding us that as Solomon grew old, he lost the blessings because he lost his heart. Dear God, may we not do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.